Though we've often commented already about it, how thankful and blessed we are to be able to assemble today in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. After all, this is the church of Christ. It belongs to Him. And as thankful as we are to be able to assemble today in order to worship Him in truth and in spirit. Perhaps in light of one of those announcements in the bulletin, I could add just a, another brief statement about it. We do want to thank you for the prayers that you uttered on, hard, on behalf of John Painter. As you know, his health condition is extremely, extremely serious. It seems as though with each passing day, it, uh, that cancer is advancing very, very rapidly. But he obeyed the gospel Friday, baptized him into Christ. Not only that, but his wife as well. Another brother and sister in Christ today. But one thing I wanted to add was in the evening hours of Friday... One of the gentlemen present at the baptism was his father, John's father, Taylor. Uh, had the opportunity, Denise and I, to visit with him Friday night, and he was restored to the gospel. He'd been baptized many years earlier, but restored. And so a third piece of good news about that day. Wanted to share that with you, and thanks again for your prayers on behalf of that family. The lesson today is entitled, Delaying Obedience. For the next few moments, I would invite us to, to give some consideration, some directed thoughts to what's involved in delaying obedience. And I suspect that maybe almost immediately our thoughts might rush to perhaps those who've never obeyed the gospel. And certainly this lesson will be directed in such a way that those could be benefit from it. But may I suggest that even those of us who perhaps are Christians... There still are encouragements that need to be appreciated by us relative to some change, some repentance, some matter, if you please, of even our continued obedience. So I hope that the lesson today will be beneficial for each and every one of us. To do that, let's begin with some introductory remarks. And on this slide, you'll notice rather interestingly that the topic of obedience is such a thorough one in the Word of God. The idea is rather simple, isn't it? To do what you're told. To do that which one is instructed to do. Now, thankfully, when you and I give thought to that matter of obedience, we know there are several avenues in life in which the Word of God describes it. Children's obedience to parents, the obedience of individuals to civil authorities so long as those do not oppose the gospel. But today our interest is not really in either of them per se. Our interest is what about directly obeying matters to be right with God? There are circumstances, of course, in the lives of individuals in which sometimes they put off that obedience. I wonder why that might be. What are some supposed reasons, if you will, today? Let's look at a few of them and use the Word of God as our guide, reminding all of us that not only is this, of course, a message for those that have never obeyed the gospel initially, but certainly not only for them, but all of us as well. Sometimes we can put off obedience as well. As you close that slide with me, to reflect on those brings us to an initial consideration of this. I found it a bit challenging to reflect on the number of times that God, at His Holy Word, uses the word obey or the word obedience. You'll notice at the top, 118 times in the King James translation, that word obey or some immediate form of it, like obeying or obeyed, occurs. 118 times. Not only that, you'll notice beneath it, 
the full word obedience occurs a dozen times in the Bible, and every one of them is in the New Testament. Every one of them. It's almost as if as we turn the page from Old to New Testament, we thrill with the thought of that noun obedience, what it involves and the blessings that it brings, and of course the reward that's conditioned upon it. Surely in light of those things, you'll notice just a few of the passages in which at least the sentiment, the thought of the word appears might do us great good. In Genesis chapter 6, in the midst of a world that was so overwhelmed in iniquity and sin, there was a single bright spot, the man named Noah. And yet as we reflect on the fact that he found grace in the eyes of the Lord, this description of Noah is given. Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Genesis 6 verse 22. Now you and I might notice that the word obey in that verse, but notice the principle, the thought, the sentiment that goes with it. Noah did that which God commanded him. Follow that up with this one. In Deuteronomy 13.4, in the midst of that description about prophets, some who were false and some who were not, we find a highlight relative to those who were blessed in that they obeyed. They followed the teaching of God. What about that haunting question of Judges 2 verse 2? There the angel himself delivered this message, Thou hast not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Isn't that a great question? Here an angel directly addressed the children of Israel, affirming before them, you haven't done what God told you to do. Why? You know they didn't have a good reason. You know there were no thoughts they could express by which that could justify their disobedience. Why have you done this? May I submit that kind of question is as pertinent and as thrilling for you and me today in every avenue of disobedience, God Himself still asks, Why are you doing this? And so, you could put your name in the blank as well as I could put my own. Randy, why have you disobeyed me? You know what the Bible teaches. Why are you doing this? A rather sobering question, isn't it? As you turn the page to these other Old Testament examples, in 1 Samuel 15 that very memorable occasion on which, of course, Saul was the king of Israel. Saul was given a commission, a very directive matter in regard to the Amalekites. Destroy them. Leave not any of them. And yet, as Saul prepared the armies of Israel and, in fact, attacked the Amalekites, they did, in fact, enjoy a great victory that day. But Saul didn't obey what God said to do, for he did not do the full destruction that God commanded. Isn't it a rather sobering matter, though, when the remaining matters of that chapter unfold? As the animals are brought back and as King Agag is brought back, the following scene plays out before us. Samuel, of course, had been warned and told by God what had befallen Saul and what he had done. And Samuel came before King Saul. And he made mention of, I hear the bleeding of sheep and I hear the lowing of oxen. Samuel said, why haven't you obeyed God? Saul said, but I have obeyed God. I've done exactly what He told me to do. I conquered the Amalekites. 
And as things develop, we ultimately notice Samuel said, you haven't obeyed God. The king's here. You didn't destroy him. The animals, you brought them back. You didn't fulfill the fullness of the commands God gave you. You didn't obey him. In the final analysis, even after a second time, Saul confessing, but I did obey God. Finally, in verses 21 and following of the chapter, Saul makes confession. I sinned. I really didn't obey him. Isn't it interesting to see that change? He first perhaps really thought that he had. He was deceived. He, was, he had deluded himself, hadn't he? And sometimes, isn't that very much the case today? It might well be in light of those things. In Jeremiah 9 verse 13 and later in chapter 26 as well, God commissioned His prophet Jeremiah. And in the words of Jeremiah, one more time the people of Judah were brought to recognize, You haven't obeyed me. The New Testament is no less clear. One by one, you and I can notice Acts 5.29, we ought to obey God rather than men. When Peter and John and the others were so challenged about the physicalness of their being, they were threatened because they preached the gospel, and yet they still understood the fact we must, we ought, we have to obey God. That obedience takes us to the next one in Romans 6.17, which was the text that Gary read a moment ago. The Roman congregation was such that as Paul rehearsed some previous matters about their history, he said, but God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin. And isn't it a fantastic truth that the Holy Spirit used a past tense verb, you at one time were servants of sin, he said, but no longer you are. You have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Think of that transition, the transformation that had occurred. They had been servants of sin, but they weren't any longer. What was the change? They had obeyed from the heart. They had obeyed that which God told them to do. And the reward, the blessing that came with it was this. In consequence of that obedience, He said, You have become servants of righteousness. Verse 18 of the same chapter. Today, as you and I give consideration, thought to this matter of obedience, you'll notice several other New Testament passages, not the least of which, that text in Hebrews chapter 5, where the beautiful entrance into heaven conditioned for those who obey the Master. In 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 17, another question of tremendous significance if judgment first begins at the household of God, what shall be the end of them which obey not the gospel of God? Obedience, it goes without saying, is of vital importance. What about you and me today? It may well be that each of us are in such a position to ever appreciate the, the ongoing necessity of obedience. But quite frankly... Some in the audience have never become a Christian. Each of us who are would earnestly ask you today, Why? Why do you delay? Why do you wait? What do you hope for for tomorrow that might make tomorrow better than today? What do you hope for concerning maybe next Sunday that might make then a better choice or a greater preference than now? For those who are Christians... Maybe there's some matter in your life 
And I don't know of any particular examples, but each of us know ourselves better than anyone else. But you know that all isn't well. You know that there's something that you've said or done or some activity in life which you've been given to that isn't in harmony with the Word of God. And yet in a little while as we sing an invitation song, you will have a decision to make. We all will. For if you need to obey at that moment, you either will decide to respond publicly or you won't. You can't remain on the fence. You either will decide to respond or you'll decide not to. And if you need to respond but choose not to, we might ask, why? Let's use the remainder of our lesson time this morning to look at some reasons that some may give for delaying this obedience. To do that, we'll start with this particular set. We've just studied about obedience a moment ago. We gave some con consideration to that to be sure. We aren't discussing today about those who are ignorant of the Word of God. We're concerned, for instance, about some who might use this supposed answer. We each know very well that the enticements of this life and the allurements of it are such that they make it very desirable in many ways. The activities of this life look so promising and often so very inviting. And so some might use a different word, but ultimately this is the sentiment. Christianity and all that it demands is not appealing to me. I like doing the things that I currently do. Whether that be alcohol whether that be the friendships I'm able to enjoy. If I become a Christian, he won't have anything to do with me. Or at least I can't fellowship him doing what he usually does. And I don't want to give that up. I kind of like it. I rather enjoy it, to be quite honest with you. And I just don't want to give that up. This attitude, this consideration of simply that Christian walk of life not very appealing to me... May I ask us to reflect on ultimately what's behind that sort of thinking? You'll notice at the top of that slide, may I be quick to say, using the Word of God, that that sort of thinking is a strong, strong statement that there's a recalibration, a change in thinking that's necessary. And I'd like to use just a moment, perhaps the remainder of the lesson in one way or another, to help us think about that kind of recalibration. Let's start with this. Don't you realize that any kind of enjoyment or fun or frivolity that the world offers in that way, at its best is short-lived. At its very, very best, it's only but very short. And that temporariness is going to give way to the following facts. Sin is always harmful. There's never an exception to that. Now, the harm may not come immediately, but it'll be there eventually. And the harm that comes from it, the hurtfulness and the damage and the frayed relationships that follow from it will lead to great regret. It's true, sin has its momentary pleasures. No one can doubt that. The Bible even teaches it. Wasn't it said of Moses in Hebrews eleven twenty five 25 that he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season? But that doesn't set aside the point. Sin is always, always harmful. The wages of sin is death. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. 
And notice, Paul never conditioned. He didn't say it only leads to death if, it only leads to death when. It always leads to what's hurtful. It destroys oneself in terms of relationship with God. It often destroys one's relationship to others. It's hurtful. It's harmful. And you know it brings the proverbial tear to the eye of God. For the very one who His Son died for now is rejecting the love and the mercy and the grace that's offered. Isn't it interesting then that some would say, but that Christian way of life is just not appealing to me. It doesn't look fun to me. Look at some of these additional thoughts. When Paul addressed the church in Rome, in Romans 6 verse number 12, it says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Did you notice the word obey is present? So even those who disobey God, they're obeying something. But notice they're obeying sin. They're obeying the devil. They're obeying Satan. They're obeying that master who is certainly guilty of all kinds of deception. Do you really want to obey a master like that? I believe all of us would agree that we don't particularly like to choose to live beneath a leader, an overlord, a dictator who has our harm as his interest. But yet that's what the devil does. My friend, he doesn't love you. And if you think that the things of this life are not appealing, or rather the things of God are not appealing, and you choose to follow the devil, you're following one who quite frankly hates you. He wants you to go to hell with him. He wants you to, in fact, be exactly where He is and to enjoy all the anguish, the agony, the separation from God that He knows. That's what He wants. He is not interested in your soul salvation. He isn't interested in your eternal well-being at all. Time and again in the Bible, that image is given to us of the devil. In Zechariah chapter 3, we see a picture, a portrait of him standing between Israel and God. He didn't want Israel to be obedient. He didn't want Israel to be faithful. He wanted Israel to be sinful. And by and large, he got what he wanted. Thankfully, there were a faithful few. Today, aren't we thankful for a faithful few? A remnant who do cling to the truth of the Word of God and who want to obey it more than anything else. One last thing. Those who subscribe to this feeling that Christian life just doesn't look appealing enough to me, in making that statement, you're making a statement. I love this world more than I love God. I love this world more than I love Jesus. I love this world more than I love heaven. I love this world more than I love my own soul. That's what you're saying. Is that what you want? Would you be happy with that statement on, on, on your headstone? This person loved this world more than he or she loved God. I hope we can be wiser than that. Isn't it true that in Mark chapter 8, verses 36 and 37, Jesus said, What will a man give in exchange for his soul? That's a great question, isn't it? Perhaps in light of that, let's come to the next one. Some perhaps are quick to say, maybe they're motivated to think that Christian life, I, I can do that and I would be happy to try it. But this is just not the right time. I need to get some things worked out. I need to wait for a better time, a convenient time, another time. This just isn't the right time. 
Let's think about that for the next few moments. Not the right time. The closing thoughts on that slide, again, lead me to think back to the moments, the time of my own, the day of my own baptism. I can remember the, when that invitation song was started that night. I knew I needed to obey the gospel. I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. That preacher didn't tell me anything that night that I didn't already know. But I had a decision to make, and the vast majority of this group has also made that same decision. I felt so good walking down that aisle. I knew that there were eyes upon me. I knew that there were sins I needed to have cleansed. The time was right. May I say, the time is always right to obey God. It's always right to do the right thing. Let's develop that more, for, more thoroughly like this on the next slide. May we be so quick to say, as we've often noted it, time is something that you and I seem to be under the illusion that is just an indefinite thing. There's a, just an unlimited amount of it. But that isn't so. Death is coming for each and every one of us if the Lord delays His coming. And certainly that makes us appreciate this. This world is going to come to an end at some point, and none of us know when. The urgency of the moment is crucial. As I mentioned earlier, there are those afflicted with cancer and diseases. There are those who perhaps you and I all know we have conversation with someone one day, and three days later we're going to that person's funeral. They gave no hint of being ill, no measure of being sick, and yet they were killed in a car wreck. They had a heart attack, suffered a massive stroke. Many other things might be listed. We are not promised tomorrow. That more convenient time, my friend, that you might be waiting for, it may never come. It may never come. Today is the day of salvation. Those are the very words of 2 Corinthians 6, verses 1 and 2. Today is, not tomorrow. Now, if tomorrow comes, that can be a day of salvation too, but let's not think about tomorrow yet. We aren't promised it. That means of today, doesn't that bring to your mind the opening statement of Proverbs 27? Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Even Solomon so long ago recognized tomorrow isn't promised. Surely that leads us to those closing thoughts at the top of that slide. When you and I think about this opportune time, this other time, this more convenient time, don't you think about the scene in the book of Acts? I might direct your attention to Acts 24. As Paul preached so boldly before the leader of the moment, wasn't it true that that gentleman himself said he trembled by the preaching of Paul? Paul preached about righteousness, temperance, and the judgment to come. And Felix trembled, the text says. Go thy way. I'll call when there's a more convenient time. May I ask you to note this? As far as the biblical record tells us, we don't know that a convenient time ever came. We don't know that Felix died saved. He may well have died lost. That may have been the closest time he ever came to obeying the gospel. Don't let that be said of you. If you've thought about obeying the gospel, 
And maybe several times you've exited this building after an invitation song and you never responded publicly, positively. How many more times will you have? Today might be the last one. Tonight might be the last one. We just don't know. But wouldn't it be awful to arrive at the day of judgment? And at that time, I'm persuaded that our memories will be virtually keen and perfect. You'll know I had 715 times to obey the gospel and I didn't do it any of them. But there won't be a thing you can do about it then. All the times will be lost. Today is the day of salvation, my friend. The moment is keen and the time is before us. Reason number three. Sometimes others might say, but I've got friends, and I just don't know what they might think. Maybe if I obey the gospel, my friend will look with a very different attitude toward me, and not only that, he, in such disapproval, may sever that which I've enjoyed by friendship with him. How will my friends react? I suppose that many have been the times that Young, young people, teenagers have spoken along those lines to Denise and me. As they thought about what it would mean to obey the gospel, normalcy and approve, being approved is very important. But I might say in some way that's even true of, of all of us. But let's think about that for just a moment. Suppose my friends do laugh at me. Suppose they do disapprove when I won't drink with them. Suppose they do, in fact, insult me and blaspheme me and talk mean and ugly of me. Would I rather lose my soul because of that? In fact, may we say it this. Jesus warned about this. He warned His apostles about it. And He warns all of us about the same. In John 15, 19, He said, The world has hated me, and it'll hate you too. Later, we notice Peter commented along those lines in 1 Peter chapter 2. Again, those of us who subscribe to the Master, we understand the fact that we are, this world is not our home. And we understand the fact we're marching after the one who died for us. My friends, may I ask again about the attitude of love? We often lift high that banner, that consideration of love, and, and rightly so because it's so important in the Word of God. But isn't this the case? If my friends will insult and disapprove my obedience to the gospel, they don't love me. But Jesus does love me. Would I not be preferred and directed to follow Him? And who knows, but what if I obey the gospel, I might be that influence that can help win them to Christ. When we think about the attitude, the reaction of our friends... One of the things on that slide is this. We must be awfully cautious. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. And so as we appreciate that very matter then may well be true. If I obey the gospel, I will not by any means not say this. If you obey the gospel, you may not be able to associate in the same way with those friends that you have in the past. Their style of life, their choices, the things they do may be wholly inconsistent with the Word of God and your association with them may thus have to cease. Jesus said that. However, may I again say this, as the Lord made that statement, 
He did it first for your well-being to maintain this, the salvation of your soul. And as we mentioned earlier, that closing verse, what a change that wrought in the life of Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, verse 2, we read about a man that came to Jesus by night. We read about a man who had a question on his mind, but we notice Jesus not only gave him the answer to the question, He in fact set before him an incredible truth. Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Two verses later, he explained that by saying that that rebirth involves water and spirit. Nicodemus appears to have been so moved, so compelled by that, that by the time we reach John 5, 7, verse 50, that same man, Nicodemus, is now openly a defender of what you and I would recognize as the truth. And by the time we reach John 19, 39, he even helped bury the precious body of our Savior. The Lord's directness with Nicodemus may directly have helped him become a faithful servant. My friend, worry less about what your friends think. Worry more about what God demands. In time, your influence can help reach those friends. What about a fourth statement sometimes that's made? A statement like this one. But what about my family? What about my family? My mother, my father, they weren't Christians. And if I become a Christian... I'll be saved, they'll be lost. I just can't do that. I can't make that kind of impression and that statement about my parents. I love them too much. Speaking of my grandmother, some would say, not a finer woman than that's ever lived, that if she's not saved, then I don't want to be saved either. And she was never baptized. She never obeyed the gospel. She never became a member of the church. Let us at least analyze somewhat quickly and briefly those kinds of thinkings. After all, the Word of God has things like this to say. There is no question, as you and I reflect on the love of our parents and our grandparents and perhaps many other close family members, we respect them, we honor them, and we appreciate so much all that they have done and continue to do for us. But let us ask it this way. Those departed ones, those individuals who have now passed on, if they weren't saved, they know exactly already where they are. They already know the fate of their eternity. They already know the kind of circumstance in which they now are. When that rich man left this world, he found himself in a place of torment. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 and following. He knew it instantly what it was in terms of the decisions he had made and the consequences of those decisions. Let's turn that around. So those individuals that have gone on, their fate has now been determined by the choices of their life. But I'm still alive on this earth. I have the opportunity for salvation. Would my departed mother want me to be lost knowing that I can be wiser and do something about it? Would my departed grandfather... As wonderful a man as he was, some would say, would that man want me purposefully and deliberately to be lost, knowing that I can do something different about it? We know the answer is no. Later on in Luke chapter 16, note verse 28. 
as you reflect on the fullness of that record of the rich man and Lazarus, the time came in that development when the rich man made a plea to, to, to Lazarus. He made a plea, I should say, in regard to Lazarus. Send somebody back to tell my brothers so that they'll not come here. Please, please send somebody back. I've got five brothers and I don't want them to come here. Let me be so blunt as to say, if a departed mother, father, grandmother, or somebody else has departed this life not faithful, the last thing on this earth that they want is for you to come to the place where they now are. Even they have more consideration for you than that. They want you to obey the gospel. They don't want you to be lost. Don't use that as any reason. One last thing. Some would say, or at least would think, but am I not okay already? I don't murder anybody. I've never slept with another man's wife. I've never stolen anything in my life. I try to be good to my parents. I'm good to my neighbors. Well, all that's fine. Where in it is anything that forgives sin? Does being a good husband forgive sin? Does being a good neighbor forgive sin? Does never stealing forgive sin? Therein lies the disconnect in the mind of many. Being good doesn't accomplish anything along that line. Sin's the problem. The only thing that can generate salvation is whatever forgives sin. Now to be sure, if living a moral life, if the Bible somewhere taught that that forgives sin, then so be it. But the problem is it doesn't. And couldn't we be so direct as to say this? If living simply a good life forgives sin, why, why, why did Jesus ever come to this earth? There were good people living in the Old Testament. Fine people, wonderful neighbors. But the fact is, they were sinners. And being good doesn't forgive sin. In fact, as you close this lesson with what's at the bottom of that slide and what comes next, this issue is a serious one because the one and only thing that forgives sin is the blood of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how faithful I might be at the workplace. It doesn't matter those other things in terms of forgiving sin, I admit. God does expect that as we serve Him and we become a Christian, we will do the best of which we're capable in the various avenues of our life. But what forgives sin? Ephesians 1 verse 7, Colossians 1 14, both of which say the one and only thing is the blood of Jesus Christ. And so if you haven't contacted that blood, you're not saved. You're not. Today, why do you not obey? That question comes to all of us, every one of us. And we've got a choice to make as we close that lesson. Because the place of forgiveness is here and now. Jesus died on a cross a long time ago. And as He did, as He did, He did it to 
help us set aside these supposed reasons. We've looked at several today. The Christian life is not appealing. That's no reason. I'm waiting for a better opportune time. That's no reason. I'm afraid of what my friends might think. That's no reason. I'm afraid of what that might be saying about my family and what my family might think. That's not a reason either. Finally, I think maybe I'm okay. If you've never had your sins forgiven, you know you're not. And only the blood of Jesus can forgive sins. Jesus Christ urges you and He urges me. He urges all of us. Why do you delay obedience? Jesus says, I love you, you know. I made it possible for you to be saved. Why won't you do what I tell you? Why won't you take hold of the blessing that I'm offering? Why won't you allow me to put your name in the book of life? Why won't you be faithful until death? I'm preparing mansions for those that are faithful. I want to put your name on one. Why won't you let me do it? What are you going to say as we stand in a moment and sing this hymn of encouragement? Why do you delay? Why do I delay? Question's yours. There's no good answer to it other than to say, I'm ready, I'm willing, and I'm going to do it. Why don't you do that now while together we stand and sing?